Chapter Six of the Golden Bow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbro, Helsingfors, Finland. The Golden Bow by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Six. Magicians as Kings. The foregoing evidence may satisfy us that in many lands and many races magic has claimed to control the great forces of nature for the good of man. If that has been so, the practitioners of the art must necessarily be personages of importance and influence in any society which puts faith in their extravagant pretensions. And it would be no matter for surprise if, by virtue of the reputation which they enjoy and the awe which they inspire, some of them should attain to the highest position of authority over their credulous fellows. In point of fact, magicians appear to have often developed into chiefs and kings. Let us begin by looking at the lowest race of men, as to whom we possess comparatively full and accurate information, the aborigines of Australia. These savages are ruled neither by chiefs nor kings. So far as their tribes can be said to have a political constitution, it is a democracy, or rather an oligarchy, of old and influential men who meet in council and decide on all measures of importance to the practical exclusion of the younger men. Their deliberative assembly answers to the Senate of later times. If we had to coin a word for such a government of elders, we might call it the gerontocracy. The elders who in Aboriginal Australia thus meet and direct the affairs of their tribe appear to be for the most part the headmen of their respective totem clans. Now in central Australia, where the desert nature of the country and the almost complete isolation from foreign influences have retarded progress and preserved the natives and the whole in their most primitive state, the headmen of the various totem clans are charged with the important task of performing magical ceremonies for the multiplication of the totems. And as the great majority of the totems are edible animals or plants, it follows that these men are commonly expected to provide the people with food by means of magic. Others have to make the rain to fall or to render other services to the community. In short, among the tribes of central Australia the headmen are public magicians. Further, their most important function is to take charge of the sacred storehouse, usually a cleft in the rocks or a hole in the ground, where are kept the holy stones and sticks, churinga, with which the souls of all the people, both living and dead, are apparently supposed to be in a manner bound up. Thus, while the headmen have certainly to perform what we would call civil duties, such as to inflict punishment for breaches of tribal custom, their principal functions are sacred or magical. When we pass from Australia to New Guinea, we find that, though the natives stand at a far higher level of culture than the Australian Aborigines, the constitution of society among them is still essentially democratic or oligarchic, and chieftainship exists only in embryo. Thus Sir William MacGregor tells us that in British New Guinea no one has ever arisen wise enough, bold enough, and strong enough to become the despot even of a single district. The nearest approach to this has been the very distant one of some person becoming a renowned wizard, but that has only resulted in levying a certain amount of blackmail. According to a native account, the origin of the power of Melanesian chiefs lies entirely in the belief that they have communication with mighty ghosts, 
and wield that supernatural power whereby they can bring the influence of the ghosts to bear. If a chief imposed a fine, it was paid because the people universally dreaded his ghostly power, and firmly believed that he could inflict calamity and sickness upon such as resisted him. As soon as any considerable number of his people began to disbelieve in his influence with the ghosts, his power to levy fines was shaken. Again, Dr. George Brown tells us that in New Britain, a ruling chief was always supposed to exercise priestly functions, that is, he professed to be in constant communication with the Tibarans, spirits, and through their influence he was enabled to bring rain or sunshine, fair winds or foul ones, sickness or health, success or disaster in war, and generally to procure any blessing or curse for which the applicant was willing to pay a sufficient price. Still rising in the scale of culture, we come to Africa, where both the chieftainship and the kingship are fully developed, and here the evidence for the evolution of the chief out of the magician, and especially out of the rainmaker, is comparatively plentiful. Thus among the Vambugwe, a Bantu people of East Africa, the original form of government was a family republic, but the enormous power of the sorcerers, transmitted by inheritance, soon raised them to the rank of petty lords or chiefs. Of the three chiefs living in the country in 1894, two were much dreaded as magicians, and the wealth of cattle they possessed came to them almost wholly in the shape of presents bestowed for their services in that capacity. Their principal art was that of rain-making. The chiefs of the Vataturu and other people of East Africa are said to be nothing but sorcerers destitute of any direct political influence. Again, among the Vagogo of East Africa, the main power of the chiefs, we are told, is derived from their art of rain-making. If a chief cannot make rain himself, he must procure it from someone who can. Again, among the tribes of the Upper Nile, the medicine men are generally the chiefs. Their authority rests above all upon their supposed power of making rain, for rain is the one thing which matters to the people in those districts as if it does not come down at the right time, it means untold hardships for the community. It is therefore small wonder that men more cunning than their fellows should arrogate to themselves the power of producing it, or that having gained such a reputation, they should trade on the credulity of their simpler neighbors. Hence, most of the chiefs of these tribes are rainmakers, and enjoy a popularity in proportion to their powers to give rain to their people at the proper season. Rainmaking chiefs always build their villages on the slopes of a fairly high hill, as they no doubt know that the hills attract the clouds, and that they are, therefore, fairly safe in their weather forecasts. Each of these rainmakers has a number of rainstones, such as rock crystal, aventurine, and amethyst, which he keeps in a pot. When he wishes to produce rain, he plunges the stones in water, and taking in his hand the peeled cane, which is split at the top, he beckons with it to the clouds to come, or waves them away in the way they should go, muttering an incantation the while. Or he pours water and the entrails of a sheep or goat into a hollow in a stone, and then sprinkles the water towards the sky. Though the chief acquires wealth by the exercise of his supposed magical powers, he often, perhaps generally, comes to a violent end, for in time of drought the angry people assemble and kill him, believing that it is he who prevents the rain from falling. Yet the office is usually hereditary, and passes from father to son. 
among the tribes which cherish these beliefs and observe these customs are the Latuka, Bari, Laluba, and Lokoia. In Central Africa, again, the Lendu tribe, to the west of Lake Albert, firmly believe that certain people possess the power of making rain. Among them the rainmaker either is a chief or almost invariably becomes one. The Banyoro also have a great respect for the dispensers of rain, whom they load with a profusion of gifts. The great dispenser, he who has absolute and uncontrollable power over the rain, is the king, but he can depute his power to other persons, so that the benefit may be distributed and the heavenly water laid on over the various parts of the kingdom. In western as well as in eastern and central Africa, we meet with the same union of chiefly with magical functions. Thus, in the Fan tribe, the strict distinction between chief and medicine man does not exist. The chief is also a medicine man, and a smith to boot. For the Fans esteem the smith's craft sacred, and none but chiefs may meddle with it. As to the relation between the offices of chief and rainmaker in South Africa, a well-informed writer observes, In very old days, the chief was the great rainmaker of the tribe. Some chiefs allowed no one else to compete with them, lest the successful rainmaker should be chosen as chief. There was also another reason. The rainmaker was sure to become a rich man if he gained a great reputation, and it would manifestly never do for the chief to allow anyone to be too rich. The rainmaker exerts tremendous control over the people, and so it would be most important to keep this function connected with royalty. Tradition always places the power of making rain as the fundamental glory of ancient chiefs and heroes and it seems probable that it may have been the origin of chieftainship. The man who made the rain would naturally become the chief. In the same way Chaka, the famous Zulu despot, used to declare that he was the only diviner in the country, for if he allowed rivals, his life would be insecure. Similarly speaking of the South African tribes in general, Dr. Moffat says that the rainmaker is in the estimation of the people no mean personage, possessing an influence over the minds of the people superior even that of the king, who is likewise compelled to yield to the dictates of his arch-official. The foregoing evidence renders it probable that in Africa the king has often been developed out of the public magician, and especially out of the rainmaker. The unbounded fear which the magician inspires and the wealth which he amasses in the exercise of his profession may both be supposed to have contributed to his promotion. But if the career of a magician, especially of a rainmaker, offers great reward to the successful practitioner of the art, it is beset with many pitfalls into which the unskillful or unlucky artist may fall. The position of the public sorcerer is indeed a very precarious one, for where the people firmly believe that he has it in his power to make the rain to fall, the sun to shine, and the fruits of the earth to grow, they naturally impute drought and dearth to his culpable negligence or willful obstinacy, and they punish him accordingly. Hence, in Africa, the chief who fails to procure rain is often exiled or killed. Thus, in some parts of West Africa, when prayers and offerings presented to the king have failed to procure rain, his subjects bind him with ropes and take him by force to the grave of his forefathers, that he may obtain from them the needed rain. The Banjars in West Africa ascribe to their king the power of causing rain or fine weather. So long as the weather is fine, they load him with presents of grain and cattle. But if long drought or rain threatens to spoil the crops, they insult and beat him till the weather changes. When the harvest fails or the surf 
on the beach is too heavy to allow of fishing, the people of Loango accuse their king of a bad heart and depose him. On the grain coast, the high priest or fetish king, who bears the title of Bodio, is responsible for the health of the community, the fertility of the earth, and the abundance of fish in the sea and rivers. And if the country suffers in any of these respects, the Bodio is deposed from his office. In Usukuma, a great district on the southern banks of the Victoria Nyanza, the rain and locust question is part and parcel of the sultan's government. He, too, must know how to make rain and drive away the locusts. If he and his medicine men are unable to accomplish this, his whole existence is at stake in times of distress. On a certain occasion, when the rain so greatly desired by the people did not come, the sultan was simply driven out in Ututwa, near Nasa. The people, in fact, hold that rulers must have power over nature and her phenomena. Again, we are told of the natives of the Nyanaza region, generally that they are persuaded that rain only falls as a result of magic, and the important duty of causing it to descend devolves on the chief of the tribe. If rain does not come at the proper time, everybody complains. More than one petty king has been banished his country because of drought. Among the Latuka of the Upper Nile, when the crops are withering, and all the efforts of the chief to draw down rain have proved fruitless, the people commonly attack him by night, rob him of all he possesses, and drive him away. But often they kill him. In many other parts of the world, kings have been expected to regulate the course of nature for the good of their people, and have been punished if they failed to do so. It appears that the Scythians, when food was scarce, used to put their king in bonds. In ancient Egypt, the sacred kings were blamed for the failure of the crops, but the sacred beasts were also held responsible for the course of nature. When pestilence and other calamities had fallen on the land, in consequence of a long and severe drought, the priests took the animals by night and threatened them, but if the evil did not abate, they slew the beasts. On the coral island of Niue, or Savage Island in the South Pacific, there formerly reigned a line of kings, but as the kings were also high priests and were supposed to make the food grow, the people became angry with them in times of scarcity and killed them, till at last, as one after another was killed, no one would be king, and the monarchy came to an end. Ancient Chinese writers inform us that in Korea the blame was laid on the king whenever too much or too little rain fell and the crops did not ripen. Some said that he must be deposed, others that he must be slain. Among the American Indians, the furthest advance towards civilization was made under the monarchical and theocratic governments of Mexico and Peru, but we know too little of the early history of these countries to say whether the predecessors of their deified kings were medicine men or not. Perhaps a trace of such a succession may be detected in the oath which the Mexican kings, when they mounted the throne, swore that they would make the sun to shine, the clouds to give rain, the rivers to flow, and the earth to bring forth fruits in abundance. Certainly, in Aboriginal America, the sorcerer or medicine man, surrounded by a halo of mystery and an atmosphere of awe, was a personage of great influence and importance, and he may well have developed into a chief or king in many tribes, though positive evidence of such a development appears to be lacking. Thus Catlin tells us that in North America the medicine men 
are valued as dignitaries in the tribe, and the greatest respect is paid to them by the whole community, not only for their skill in their materia medica, but more especially for their tact in magic and mysteries, in which they all deal to a very great extent. In all tribes their doctors are conjurers, are magicians, are soothsayers, and I had liked to have said high priests, inasmuch as they superintend and conduct all their religious ceremonies. They are looked upon by all as oracles of the nation. In all councils of war and peace, they have a seat with the chiefs, are regularly consulted before any public step is taken, and the greatest deference and respect is paid to their opinions. Similarly, in California, the shaman was, and still is, perhaps the most important individual among the Maidu. In the absence of any definite system of government, the word of a shaman has great weight. As a class, they are regarded with much awe, and as a rule are obeyed much more than the chief. In South America, also the magicians or medicine men seem to have been on the high road to chieftainship or kingship. One of the earliest settlers on the coast of Brazil, the Frenchman Tevi, reports that the Indians hold these pages or medicine men, in such honor and reverence that they adore, or rather idolize them. You may see the common folk go to meet them, prostrate themselves, and pray to them, saying, Grant that I be not ill, that I do not die, neither I nor my children, or some such request. And he answers, You shall not die, you shall not be ill, and such like replies. But sometimes, if it happens that these pages do not tell the truth, and things turn out otherwise than they predicted, the people make no scruple of killing them as unworthy of the title and dignity of pages. Among the Lengua Indians of the Gran Chaco, every clan has its casique or chief, but he possesses little authority. In virtue of his office, he has to make many presents, so he seldom grows rich and is generally more shabbily clad than any of his subjects. As a matter of fact, the magician is the man who has most power in his hands, and he is accustomed to receive presents instead of to give them. It is the magician's duty to bring down misfortune and plagues on the enemies of his tribe, and to guard his own people against hostile magic. For these services he is well paid, and by them he acquires a position of great influence and authority. Throughout the Malay region, the Raja, or king, is commonly regarded with superstitious veneration as the possessor of supernatural powers. And there are grounds for thinking that he too, like apparently so many African chiefs, has been developed out of a simple magician. At the present day the Malays firmly believe that the king possesses a personal influence over the works of nature, such as the growth of the crops and the bearing of fruit trees. The same prolific virtue is supposed to reside, though in a lesser degree, in his delegates, and even in the persons of Europeans who chance to have charge of districts. Thus, in Selangor, one of the native states of the Malay Peninsula, the success or failure of the rice crops is often attributed to a change of district officers. The Turadeas of southern Celebes hold that the prosperity of the rice depends on the behavior of their princes, and that bad government by which they mean a government which does not conform to ancient custom, will result in failure of the crops. The Diaks of Sarawak believed that their famous English ruler, Raja Brook, was endowed with a certain magical virtue, which, if properly applied, could render the rice crops abundant. 
Hence, when he visited a tribe, they used to bring him the seed which they intended to sow next year, and he fertilized it by shaking it over the women's necklaces, which had been previously dipped in a special mixture. And when he entered a village, the women would wash and bathe his feet, first with water, then with the milk of a young coconut, and lastly with water again, and all this water which had touched his person they preserved for the purpose of distributing it on their farms, believing that it ensured an abundant harvest. Tribes, which were too off for him to visit, used to send him a small piece of white cloth and a little gold or silver, and when these things had been impregnated by his generative virtue, they buried them in their fields, and confidently expected a heavy crop. Once, when a European remarked that the rice crops of the Samban tribe were thin, the chief immediately replied that they could not be otherwise, since Raja Brook had never visited them, and he begged that Mr. Brook might be induced to visit his tribe and remove the sterility of their land. The belief that kings possess magical or supernatural powers, by virtue of which they can fertilize the earth and confer other benefits on their subjects, would seem to have been shared by the ancestors of all the Aryan races from India to Ireland, and it has left clear traces of itself in our own country down to modern times. Thus the ancient Hindu law book called the Laws of Manu describes as follows the effects of a good king's reign. In that country where the king avoids taking the property of mortal sinners, men are born in due time and are long-lived, and the crops of the husbandmen spring up, each as it was sown, and the children die not, and no misshaped offspring is born. In Homeric Greece, kings and chiefs were spoken of as sacred or divine. Their houses too were divine and their chariots sacred, and it was thought that the reign of a good king caused the black earth to bring forth wheat and barley, the trees to be loaded with fruit, the flocks to multiply, and the sea to yield fish. In the Middle Ages, when Valdemar I, king of Denmark, travelled in Germany, Mothers brought their infants and husbandmen their seed for him to lay his hands on, thinking the children would both thrive the better for the royal touch, and for a like reason farmers asked him to throw their seed for them. It was the belief of the ancient Irish that when their kings observed the customs of their ancestors, the seasons were mild, the crops plentiful, the cattle fruitful, the waters abounded with fish, and the fruit trees had to be propped up on account of the weight of their produce. A canon attributed to St. Patrick enumerates among the blessings that attained the reign of a just king, fine weather, calm seas, crops abundant, and trees laden with fruit. On the other hand, dearth, dryness of cows, blight of fruit, and scarcity of corn were regarded as infallible proofs that the reigning king was bad. Perhaps the last relic of such superstitions which lingered about our English kings was the notion that they could heal scrofula by their touch. The disease was accordingly known as the king's evil. Queen Elizabeth often exercised this miraculous gift of healing. On Midsummer Day, 1633, Charles I cured a hundred patients at one swoop in the chapel royal at Holyrood but it was under his son Charles II that the practice seems to have attained its highest vogue. It is said that in the course of his reign Charles II touched near a hundred thousand persons for scrofula. The press to get near him was sometimes terrific. On one occasion six or seven of those who came to be healed were trampled to death. 
the cool-headed William III contemptuously refused to lend himself to the hocus-pocus, and when his palace was besieged by the usual unsavory crowd, he ordered them to be turned away with a dole. On the only occasion when he was importuned into laying his hand on a patient, he said to him, God give you better health and more sense. However, the practice was continued, as might have been expected, by the dull bigot James the Second and his dull daughter, Queen Anne. The kings of France also claimed to possess the same gift of healing by touch, which they are said to have derived from Clovis or from St. Louis, while our English kings inherited it from Edward the Confessor. Similarly, the savage chiefs of Tonga were believed to heal scrofula and cases of indurated liver by the touch of their feet, and the cure was strictly homeopathic, for the disease as well as the cure was thought to be caused by contact with the royal person, or with anything that belonged to it. On the whole, then, we seem to be justified in inferring that in many parts of the world the king is the lineal successor of the old magician or medicine man. When once a special class of sorcerers has been segregated from the community and entrusted by it with the discharge of duties on which the public safety and welfare are believed to depend, these men gradually rise to wealth and power, till their leaders blossom out into sacred kings. But the great social revolution, which thus begins with democracy and ends in despotism, is attended by an intellectual revolution which affects both the conception and the functions of royalty. For as time go on, the fallacy of magic becomes more and more apparent to the acuter minds, and is slowly displaced by religion. In other words, the magician gives way to the priest, who, renouncing the attempt to control directly the processes of nature for the good of man, seeks to attain the same end indirectly by appealing to the gods to do for him what he no longer fancies he can do for himself. Hence the king, starting as magician, tends gradually to exchange the practice of magic for the priestly functions of prayer and sacrifice. And while the distinction between the human and the divine is still imperfectly drawn, it is often imagined that men may themselves attain to Godhead, not merely after their death, but in their lifetime, through the temporary or permanent possession of their whole nature by a great and powerful spirit. No class of the community has benefited so much as kings by this belief in the possible incarnation of a god in human form. The doctrine of that incarnation, and with it the theory of the divinity of kings in the strict sense of the word, will form the subject of the following chapter. End of chapter 6 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.